The following sermon podcast is a glimpse into the community of Central Bible Church, where we strive to welcome everyone into Jesus' life. We hope that you can join us for this Sunday service as we gather together seeking to live in and for Christ. John, so John, oops, sorry, uh, 1, 43 through 51. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thanks, Maris. Good morning. My name is Andrew. I'm one of the pastors here at Central Bible. Um, Walking in a winter wonderland, huh? How about that? See this up here? All this stuff right here? This guy. No, not really. Uh, mostly Danny, mostly Mackenzie. Uh, Mackenzie is responsible for a lot of the ideas. Doesn't it look good? If you're one of those people who's like, why did we do this before Thanksgiving? Because the staff wanted to have a nice, long, relaxing weekend next weekend. So that's why we're decorated. we decorated a week early. But um, I think it looks really good. And um, if you're joining us recently or for the first time this Sunday, we have been in a series in the Gospel of John, um, chapter 1. And we're going to work through the whole Gospel over the next year or two, um, but we're going to take breaks in between different sections. And so for this fall section, we've been in chapter 1 of John's Gospel. And what we've been looking at are these different titles that John gives to Jesus to describe what he's like. Um, He gives about seven or eight different titles to Jesus that he then refers back to throughout his gospel. And so each week we've been looking at each title, kind of honing in and focusing in on what that title tells us and reveals to us about the character of Jesus. And for this week, I had slated for us to focus in on the idea of Jesus as the King of Israel. Um, But in some good irony, Jesus had some other plans, and here's what I mean by that. Uh, while John records Nathaniel calling Jesus, calls him a few things. He says, you're the son of God, you're the rabbi, right? We just heard him say, and then he says, you're the king of Israel. Um, Jesus gives himself a title in this passage. I don't know if you caught that at the very end there. He says, the angels of God are ascending and descending on the son of man. Now, one of the things that John has been encouraging uh, the readers, you and I, to do as we work through his gospel is to honestly assess um, whether you're seeing or perceiving Jesus as he really is. In other words, are you more like the religious leaders who, who are sure of who God is and what God is like that John portrays throughout the entirety of his gospel um, the last few weeks we've been looking at Right, this this group of religious elite that come to John the Baptist. I don't know if you remember a few weeks ago me talking about him being questioned, and they can't make sense of why this Baptist is baptizing people um, when there's nothing for them to be baptized into. Right? They don't understand or have the categories or they lack the framework to make sense of what God is doing. Um, And it's really confusing and and really difficult for them. And so John wants you and I 
to ask that question of ourselves. Are we willing to see Jesus as he actually is? Or are we so committed to our, our presuppositions about what God is like, our, under, our own understanding of what he's like, that we, we sometimes miss God? Um, and I want to pause for just a moment and nuance that point a bit more because I think when I talked about it a, a couple weeks ago, I wasn't uh, as clear or as helpful maybe as I could have been. So often, we're either so familiar with our understanding of the Bible or of the scriptures or whatever you want to call it or of God or Jesus or the Holy Spirit or this doctrine or that thing. We're so confident in our understanding and we're so used to relying on our tradition um, that we begin losing that sense of awe and wonder and childlike faith that God has given to his children. Um, and so we can become confident in our definitions, in our categories, and, and words like Messiah or Son of God or King of Israel, for example, those phrases, we, we sort of, they become lost on us. Because especially if you're a person who's been in church for a long time, you've heard those words so often that they sort of lose their punch and their meaning and their, and their value. Um, and so... I guess the question I want to, to ask us and maybe answer a little bit before we get started this morning is, how do we bring our presuppositions about God um, and, and, and honestly lay them before Jesus and before the scriptures? How can we recapture some of that, that awe and that wonder? I think there's a few things that we can do. Um, first is really simple. If you want to know more about what God is like, um, God has fully revealed himself in the person and work of Jesus. And where do we see Jesus, right, most explicitly, is represented in the Gospels. And so that's one of the reasons that we're, we're taking the next year or two to work through John's Gospel. But I would encourage you to study the gospel, a Gospel in depth and be open to what it's saying. When reading the stories of Jesus... And learning about him. Do you ever find yourself saying, ah, Jesus probably didn't mean it that strongly. Or surely he's not being that extreme. Do you ever feel the need to shut down a conversation quickly? Or to answer someone's question uh, right away because you feel threatened or uncomfortable by their questioning? Do you feel threatened by others' questions or a lack of certainty about an issue? Are they, are they simply just immature, right? And maybe they're just not as far along as you, right? That's the posture that we can take if we're not careful. Third, are you surrounding yourself with folks who understand the scriptures the exact same way that you do, right? This is what we call an echo chamber, um, the church is meant to be diverse, and not just in, in, the, in our backgrounds, family of origins, eth ethnically, but, but diverse in thought, right? And there are definitely, like, we, we stick to orthodoxy, right? These core beliefs that the church has had for millennia. But within that, there's a lot of wiggle room. And so, are the, are the kinds of people that you associate with only those who think just like you on a lot of those secondary issues, Fourth, do you welcome being challenged by other followers of Jesus who differ from you? Do you welcome being challenged? Or is it too threatening? So, one other helpful tool, and I know this is just feels maybe a little bit random, but I felt like it was important because I don't think I nuanced it super helpfully the last time we talked about this. There's this thing called the Wesleyan quadrilateral. Um, yeah, you like that, right? Has anyone heard of the Wesleyan quadrilateral? Yeah, just a few people. Um, the Wesleyan quadrilateral is this idea that in order to understand God, we need four things, right? And they kind of, each one of them need to be sort of even or balanced with the others. We need scripture, we need our reason, we need tradition, Right? What does the church believe for millennia? And then 
We need our experience, our own interactions with God. Um, I don't think that this is actually super helpful, but many of us, you might not even be aware of it, we, we tend to use this as our rubric for how we understand God. But what's the problem here? I think the problem is that Scripture really is the foundation, right, for how we understand God. It's not one of four equal things, but it's kind of the very, like, footing that we have. And through that, we use our reason, we we depend on tradition and our experience. And so it would look a little bit more like that. Scripture is more important than reason, which is more important than tradition, which is more important than experience. Um, N.T. Wright says this about the, the Wesleyan quadrilateral. He says, Scripture, tradition, and reason, those three, are not like three different bookshelves, each of which can be ransacked for answers to key questions. Rather, Scripture is the bookshelf. Tradition is the memory of what people in the house have read and understood, or perhaps misunderstood, from that shelf. And reason is the set of spectacles or or glasses that people wear in order to make sense of what they've read. Though worryingly, the spectacles have varied over time, and there are signs that some readers using the reason available to them, have severely distorted the texts that they're reading. Experience is far too slippery for the concept to stand any chance of providing a stable basis sufficient to serve as an authority. Right? So our experiences are more just that. They're they're what we go through and how we make sense of our reality, but they shouldn't determine or trump Scripture reason, or tradition. Does that make sense? Is that a little bit more helpful for nuancing? How do I actually see God for who he really is and not just assume that my categories or my ways of understanding God, I'm not saying throw tradition out the window. I'm not saying base it on how you feel. There is this thing called orthodoxy that's really, really important. And we, we, we stand on the ground of scripture, reason, and tradition. Okay, clarification over. Um, so, I approached this last passage here in John chapter 1. Um, as I approached it, I kind of forgot that whole theme that we just talked about, about you know looking at Jesus and letting him sort of be him and not telling him who he is. And so, in this text, Nathaniel calls Jesus king of Israel right? Rabbi, son of God. And as I was preparing the fall series in John 1, I thought, you know, a good way to end the series would be to focus on Jesus as the king of Israel, because what do we start right after this week? Advent, right? And we we look forward to the coming of the king, Jesus. We look back at his first coming, and we we look forward hoping and expecting him to come again. Um, But as I studied the passage I quickly realized that um, Jesus and his self-designation as the Son of Man is way more significant and important uh, as a theme throughout John's Gospel. And so that's where we're going to land this morning. As I was studying uh, the passage and I was sort of thinking through with the preaching team, guys, I'm not sure what I should do. Should I, should I switch gears and totally change the focus of the sermon? They just kind of gently reminded me, hey, remember how we're, we're supposed to let Jesus speak for himself? I was like, oh, good idea. I'll practice what I preach. <laughs> and so that's what we're going to try to do this morning. It'll be kind of a meld of two different sermons or two titles, not sermons. It's not going to be two hours. Don't worry. Um, two different titles, King of Israel. How'd that get there? JK, Um, (laughs) Jesus is king of Israel, and Jesus is the son of man. That was just for the millennials. Ah, little Kanye. All right. Would you pray with me real quick? We need it now, don't we? Jesus, we love you. Um, Holy Spirit, we invite you and welcome you to be with us, in us. Would you help us to feel um, 
your love coming towards us this morning. Help us to feel your goodness. Would you grow in us a deeper sense of wonder and awe about who you are? Would you make the scriptures real to us now? We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so to start, our passage has a lot going on. Um, We've got Nathaniel's sassy attitude, right, about Jesus being from Nazareth. We've got him uh, under a fig tree. What's going on there? We've got this line at the end, the the very last verse about Jesus and these angels ascending uh, and descending on the Son of Man, and really those are, both of those, rather that verse, is two different allusions to Old Testament scriptures. So there's a ton of meaning uh, going on in that final verse. So we're going to try to work our way through the passage fairly quickly. I'm not going to be able to say everything about everything, and I know that, and that's okay sometimes, so that we can kind of get to the thrust of the text in verse 51. So let's, let's jump in. Our, our passage begins with what Oshua talked about the last couple of weeks. Um, disciples who meet Jesus, the first thing they do, at least recorded in, in the Gospels and in Acts often, is they go and share him with others. Right? The first thing that they do most often is they go and tell other people. That is the, the, the patterned natural response to learning about Jesus. Um, So now, look again here at verses 43 and 44, 45. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Apparently, that was enough for Philip to to leave things behind and go. Pretty incredible. Philip found Nathanael then, right, and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. So Jesus calls his disciples, right, to to follow him as as their rabbi, right, to give themselves over. and, And being a rabbi in the ancient Near East in this time was not like being a Bible study teacher, Right? This, was, this was a person who you gave yourself to like, like a master, right? And they, they didn't just teach the scriptures. It was a way of life. You were literally imitating your master, your rabbi. And so when Jesus says, come and follow me, it's not like, yeah, come over for a couple hours. It's like, you know, give your life to imitating me as I imitate the Father. And so Philip goes and tells Nathaniel, hey, the, 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 the Messiah, the, the guy that we've been, we've been waiting for, that you know, our Bible, right? their Bible would have been the Old Testament, right? that our Bible is all about, he's here. He's here, let's go talk to him. It's Jesus of Nazareth. And it's at that point that Nathaniel responds with, you had me up until Nazareth. Because what does he say? Nathaniel said to him, can anything good come from Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, behold, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Side note, for those of you familiar with the Enneagram, it's a personality tool, it's a helpful tool, it's not gospel, but this this verse, these verses gives me hope as an Enneagram 8, a challenger. Um, somebody who's, who's not afraid to ask bold questions and challenge things, because I hear Nathaniel being like, dude, what comes out of Nazareth, right? And, uh, and Jesus, right, he hears that, and Jesus gets super offended and mad and angry at him, doesn't he? No, he doesn't. Not at all. He just calmly says, here's an Israelite in whom there's nothing false. No deceit is in him. One commentator says this about this section. Jesus says, truly, here is an Israelite in whom there is nothing false. In this, Nathanael differs from the original Israel. Who was the original Israel? Who had the name Israel in the Old Testament? Jacob, right? And Jacob was deceitful. His name literally means deceiver. So Nathanael is free from such duplicity 
that the, the kind of duplicity that, that Jacob had, and he's prepared to consider where the, whether the claims of Jesus are actually true. And so this, I don't know, just really encouraged me. Um, Jesus can handle, he can handle at least somebody like me, which is not easy. Um, but he can handle hard questions, and he's not, he's not offended by it. He's not thrown off by it. He doesn't take any sort of, um, his posture towards Nathaniel actually isn't negative. He, he sees Nathaniel for who he really is, and he says, here's a man who's willing to, to be committed to the truth, even if the way he's communicating isn't it always so sweet. So, Jacob, why does Jesus refer to, to Jacob here? What, what's, what's going on? Verse 51, Jesus says, you will see God's angels ascending and descending on who? On the Son of Man, right? That's an allusion to an Old Testament passage in Genesis 28 with Jacob who has a dream, right? He has this vision and he sees, and we're going to get to that in a minute, but Jesus being Jesus can kind of play mind jujitsu and so... He, he's, he's sort of saying, you're not, uh, you're not a deceiver. You're not a Jacob, Nathaniel, right? You're a true Israel. You're, 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 an, you're an Israelite. Like, you're, you're honest and you're committed to the truth. There's no deceit in you. And so right off the bat, things are starting to get kind of interesting. Um, notice that, that Jesus doesn't condemn Nathaniel's comment about his hometown, um, because Nathaniel wasn't really too far off in his assessment. Uh, there really wasn't much impressive about Nazareth. Nazareth was kind of a podunk little town where people would pass through, um, maybe to get some water or some food on the way somewhere else. It was actually located just north uh, of Mount Tabor in Israel. Um, fun fact, our Mount Tabor in Portland is named after the Mount Tabor in Israel, and maybe that was really obvious to some of you. I had no idea until this week. Um, and that's due to Portland's distinct uh, Jewish culture and past. And I just I th- thought that was sort of ironic that one of the most beloved spots in our city, in our very post-Christian uh, secular city, has deeply religious roots. I just thought that was sort of funny. Um, Anyways, back to Nazareth. So it was, a small, it was a small town of just a couple thousand people, and it was mostly used as a place to stop in for the night or to pass through. And so his question, can anything good come out of Nazareth? But wait a second, where was Jesus born? Bethlehem, wasn't he? Jesus was raised in Nazareth, but he's actually born in Bethlehem. And did something good come out of Bethlehem? Yeah, the whole Davidic right royal line is out of Bethlehem. And so it's interesting that Jesus doesn't mention this. What's going on here? From John's perspective, the fact that Jesus was reared in Nazareth, um, it, it obscured his origins in Bethlehem for those who didn't look very far, but it also reflected um, Jesus's willingness to be misunderstood, right? It, it reflects his willingness to, to be misperceived or misconceived, misconceived, misperceived, I don't know. But Jesus is comfortable with people's misconceptions. I think that's interesting. He's going to be like this over and over. No offense is taken. No clarification is needed. No desire to justify himself and say, actually, I was born in Bethlehem, I'll have you know. He doesn't do that. He's totally comfortable being viewed as he, as they see him. And That's a characteristic of Jesus that maybe, I know for me, I could learn from. So, Jesus hears Nathaniel's critique, and he makes that weird and kind of interesting connection to Jacob in Genesis uh, 28. Now look at verses 48 through 50. It says that, Nathaniel said to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? 
you will see greater things than these. So the things that things Jesus says about Nathaniel, right, about his trueness and his commitment to um, honesty and not deceit, right, they resonate with him so deeply, and he's he's really impressed by by Jesus and his insights. And so he asks, "How do you, how do you know me like this?" And really, a better translation of that would be. Um, how do you already understand me? How, how can you understand me to that level, to this degree, and you don't really even know me yet? Um, and so then we come to this weird fig tree line, this moment. Um, in the ancient Near East, the fig tree was often a place where, where uh, folks would go to meditate on the scriptures or, or in prayer. Um, and so it's probable that that's what Nathaniel was doing there. And so... He asked the question about the fig tree, and uh, the, the word there um, that Jesus says about, you know, I saw you under the fig tree is kind of, it's better translated perceived, or like, I experienced you in my mind under the fig tree, right? And so Jesus probably saw Nathaniel physically there, um, but there's something more, right? He sees Nathaniel's character, and that's why he says, how do you already... How can you already understand me? He knew Nathaniel before he knew Nathaniel. You see, before they met. And so I just want to ask, did you know that Jesus sees you? He knows you. As if he's experienced you before. And he doesn't just know the parts about you that you don't like. If you're like me, I, I tend to, to, to mostly think of God's knowledge and awareness of me in terms of what I don't do well or where I failed. But here we see Jesus pointing out something beautiful and good in Nathaniel. His commitment to be truthful, to not be a Jacob. right? And do you know that Jesus sees the good, the gifts that he's given you, in you. He delights in you. He knows you, and he's for you, and he still pursues you. You haven't deterred him yet, and you won't. And that's good news for us this morning. So all of this really knocks the socks off of Nathaniel, right? He's really impressed. He starts praising Jesus. You're the son of God. Rabbi, you're, you're the king of Israel. And he's, he's, his language there tends, we think, is primarily kind of um, a human sort of king, Right? He's not really attributing to Jesus like a divine God-man uh, praise, but it's more of like a human praise. And Jesus isn't really that impressed. Um, he's not nearly as impressed as obviously Nathaniel is. And he's basically like, hey, there's a lot more where that came from. Um, you're going to see greater things than that. And there's that word again. You will see, right? You will experience or perceive um, greater things than even this miracle, if you want to call it that. And so Jesus is basically saying that the fig tree moment, right? And Nathaniel's like, he's like, that's child's play. There's far greater things in store for my children than simply little miracles like this. So, what does Jesus mean here in verse 51? Um, Let's read it again. He said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened up and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. So verse 51 is the first time in John's gospel, which is unlike any other gospel in this way, that, that John records Jesus saying, Truly, truly, right? Two trulys. The other gospels just have Jesus saying it once. But John, really, because he's so committed to convincing us, the reader, to follow and give ourselves to Jesus, he wants us to get that what he says, he means. And he wants to emphasize every single line. So, I want us, if you have your Bible or a phone, that you can look, look into Genesis 28 with me. We're going to read this together. We're going to read two different Old Testament passages Let's read this together and see what's going on here. Genesis 28, 10 through 15. We've got Jacob, 
And he has this vision, this dream. It's a really interesting dream. It says, Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Now, the place that he came to is Bethel, which is where God was, where his presence was dwelling. But he didn't know that. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south, and in you and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised." Okay, a lot going on there. This is the Jacob's Ladder story, right, that's commonly referred to. Um, And the text says that the angels of God were ascending and descending on on it. Um, And and we're not sure exactly what it is, um, but we think that it, um, it could mean the ladder, right, or the earth, or it could actually mean him on, on to Onto Jacob himself. And so in other words, uh, what's going on here is that the wisdom of God is coming down from the heavens to mankind. God's revelation is flowing down. It was graciously flowing down to Jacob. Um, And so through this dream, Yahweh was telling Jacob that he was with him, that he would bless him. um, And he promises Jacob that one day, his full presence would be experienced down on the earth among Jacob. Does that make sense? So there's multiple things going on here. Obviously, God is blessing Jacob, and he's promising to bless the entire world through Jacob. Because what would Jacob go on to be named? Israel. And through Israel, God's, the Israelites, God's chosen people, right, the entire world would be blessed. And so this is sort of the beginning of that that promise or that commitment to bless the world through the nation of Israel or or Jacob before he's given a new identity. And and the wisdom of God is graciously flowing down. The, the, The manifold wisdom, his revelation is flowing down to earth. And God's kind of saying, he's sort of hinting at something to come, right? One day I will come and fully be present among you. Um, D.A. Carson, a commentator, says, Because Jesus explicitly alludes to these experiences in Jacob's life, it becomes clear what kind of vision he's promising. What the disciples are promised, then, is a heaven-sent confirmation that the one that they've acknowledged as Messiah is, in fact, appointed by God. That Jesus is who he says he is, and he is who they think he is. And they know that in this moment because of Jesus kind of winking at them with this Old Testament allusion to Jacob's ladder about the presence of God coming down to earth. Okay, now we've got this word, or rather this phrase, the Son of Man. The angels of God are ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Where do we see this term used, and what in the world does it mean? Um, Turn with me to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7. Stick with me. How are we doing? We okay? I know it's a lot of reading. It's really good though. It's really good. And they get, there's a video after this part, so no more reading. So Daniel is an Israelite prisoner of war um, who's forced to live under the rule uh, and work under the rule of this um, dictator, evil, sort of Babylonian king. 
And Babylon is this, this evil empire. Um, and so Daniel is this devout follower of Yahweh. And basically, he has the craziest dreams. Um, and we're going to read about one of the dreams right now. Daniel chapter 7, verse 1. This is, this is in reference to the Son of Man title. So listen here. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked at its wings, I looked its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. Weird. And it was told, arise, devour much flesh. After this, I looked and behold, another like a leopard and four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads and dominion was given to it. After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, this one apparently terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong, as if the others weren't creepy. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, for before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. Okay, we're going to keep reading in just a second, but just notice, each one of those beasts, right? There's descriptions given to them, and do they each have human characteristics? Yes, okay, that's going to be important. Now look at verse 9. As I looked, now, so now there's another scene happening here. Thrones were placed to the Ancient of Days, and the Ancient of Days, Yahweh, God, took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him, a thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. So God, sitting on his throne, with all of his people there, judging these, these beasts. Okay, I looked then, because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, and as I looked, the beast was killed. And its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. And now, the last section. Stay with me. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days, so he's approaching the throne of God, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Wow. Wow. Daniel finally, at the very end here, says, As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious. Yeah, I would think so. Sounds more like a nightmare than a vision. And the visions in my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever, and ever. Wow. 
Okay, so I thought about trying to do what the Bible Project would do here and, and sort of summarize what's going on, but nope, we're just going to watch the video because it's way too complicated. So cue up the video and I'll be right back up. If you read the New Testament, you'll notice that the most common title people use to describe Jesus is the Christ, that is, the Messiah. But surprisingly, Jesus almost never used that word to describe himself. Instead, he called himself the Son of Man. The Son of Man, what does that mean? Well, the phrase comes from an important chapter in the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. Daniel was an Israelite prisoner of war who was forced to live in the empire of Babylon and work for the prideful, violent king who destroyed his home. That sounds horrible. And while he was living and working in Babylon, Daniel had this crazy prophetic dream. You ready for it? I'm ready. He saw four beasts crawling out of a dark sea, hybrid monster-like animals, each scarier than the one before. And the fourth beast is so mutant, there's nothing to compare it to. And it's violent, leaving death and destruction in its wake. What in the world is this about? Well, he's told that these beasts symbolize violent, prideful kings and their empires. Oh, like the one Daniel's enslaved to. Yeah, and these creatures might seem random to you, but these images are developing an important biblical theme. How humans are these remarkable creatures capable of doing great good and horrible evil. How we can behave like animals. Right. Look at the first pages of the Bible. God creates the beasts of the field and humans together, all from the dust. But then the humans are set apart and given a royal task of being God's image. So humans are like the animals, but called to become much more. Yeah, they're to be God's representatives on earth, ruling on his behalf like kings and queens. But keep reading, and the humans are deceived by a beast who says that they could be more than just God's partners. Yeah, that they could rule the world on their own terms, which sounds good to them. But God knows this will be a disaster. And so he expels the humans to the realm of the beasts. The partnership is lost. But God makes a promise that one day a human will be born who won't give in to the beast. Rather, he'll overcome and strike the beast while being struck by it. Okay, so for the rest of the biblical story, we're waiting for that human. But instead, in story after story, we find people acting like beasts. Yeah, like in the next story about Cain, who's jealous and angry at his brother Abel. God warns Cain that he's facing a beastly urge called sin, a dark, mysterious kind of evil that consumes humans. But God says that Cain can rule the beast if he chooses. But he doesn't rule the beast. He lets this urge devour him and he becomes a beast. And then after this, Cain's children spread their animal-like violence and it leads to the founding of a whole civilization known for its beastly pride, the city of Babylon. Okay, Babylon. So fast forward, this is where Daniel is enslaved having this bizarro dream. Exactly. Now, watch what happens next in Daniel's dream. He sees into God's throne room where a court is set up and God condemns the beast to destruction. That's great. And then Daniel sees that there's actually more than one divine throne. Oh, right, the throne that humanity left behind. Right, there hasn't been a human who's able to overcome the beast and rule alongside God until now. Daniel sees a figure called the Son of Man, which means a human and he rides on a cloud up into God's presence and then sits down on the divine throne to rule the world. The partnership's renewed. Yes, and even more, all humanity worships and serves this son of man alongside God. Oh, worship? So this is no ordinary human. This is like a God human. Exactly. And so now you can see why Jesus of Nazareth, when he came onto the scene centuries later, chose this title, the son of man for himself. He was claiming to be that truly human one on a mission to confront the beast. He was tempted to seize power on the beast's terms. But unlike every human before him, Jesus resisted the urge. And then he went about banishing the beast from people's lives, and he was teaching people how to rule the beast instead of being ruled by it. Okay, so how do you rule the beast? Well, Jesus did it by giving up his life. Wait, rule the beast by dying? Yes. When Jesus was on trial in a human courtroom and being condemned to death, he said, from this moment on, you will see the Son of Man sitting at God's right hand and coming on the clouds. But this is the moment he's about to die. Exactly. 
From one perspective, the cross looks like a beastly torture device, but Jesus viewed it as his throne. And on this throne, he exposed the subhuman nature of our evil by letting it do its worst, and then he overcame it with his divine life and love. Jesus' execution was his exaltation. So Jesus is the first human to overcome the beast, and as a result, he can partner with God to rule the world. And so now, Jesus is summoning a new humanity into existence, one that can overcome the beast in the same paradoxical way. To rule the beast by dying. And then by discovering that Jesus' life and power can become our life and power. So we can rule the world as God's partners, but Jesus-style, in the power of service, humility, and self-giving love. Just, just slightly better than I could have done. It's good stuff, right? Oh, these guys are so helpful. So Jesus picks a term, the Son of Man, to use to kind of, dude, this thing is creaking, to self-identify. That's the term that he gives himself. He doesn't often acknowledge or almost ever acknowledge other titles that are given to him like King of Israel or um, Son of God. Um, obviously, those terms tend to be packed with a lot of baggage, especially King of Israel, right? People are going to be threatened politically. So he chooses a term that's kind of vague and literally the Son of Man, it, it, it's a term that would have just meant human, human being or mankind. And so, like they said there at the end, Jesus is showing us how to be human. He is the true human. He is what we were meant to be uh, in the garden. But we decided to, to listen to that beastly urge and wisdom rather than trusting that we had everything we already, need, we already had everything we needed in God himself. And I love that, that line they say, in and through Jesus... God has become what we are so that we can become what he is and share in his divine life and love. And so Jesus comes to rule as a king, right? Two titles of this sermon, king of Israel, son of God. He does come to rule as a king, but it's not the kind of king, kingship that we would expect or maybe that we would even hope, right? How does he rule and subdue? By giving himself, by sacrifice. You think about the, the angels ascending and, and descending. Jacob's dream shows us that, that the full revelation of God looks like Jesus Christ, a God-man, who we see in Daniel's dream, right? And that shows us that, that the revelation of God comes in the form of this, this, this God-man servant being who shows us how to truly be human. The manifold wisdom and glory of Yahweh should look, it should look like a powerful king and mighty king coming from heaven on high. This king should rule with strength and power and be clearly seated above us. This king should have no business entertaining the requests of his servants, let alone joining them, uh, joining alongside them to serve. And yet this king breaks every single expectation and rule that's put on him, doesn't he? The manifold wisdom of this king does look like ruling with power, but it's not power by force. It's power by humility through self-giving love. The manifold wisdom of this king does not sit in a high, far-off place, away from his people, he gladly joins them in the beastly environment that they live, taking on that beastly urge for them. The manifold wisdom of this king does not maintain his dominion over things through war and violence, but through peace and through turning the other cheek. The manifold wisdom of this king will show his greatness and his glory by becoming a lowly servant, giving himself completely to his people. It's not the kind of king we would expect, but it is the kind of king that we need. Amen? I want to challenge you. I know that it's unlikely that every single person in this room 
has given their entire self over to following Jesus and chosen to submit all of themselves to him. And I'm not a huge fan of altar calls, and that's not really what this is, but I think that it's important to encourage you. What is stopping you from giving yourself completely to him? What rooms in your house are you not letting him into to see, even though he sees all of you already, and he wants you? Jesus is king, but he has chosen to reveal himself as this God-man servant who goes lower than even the beasts who kill him. And that's good news for you and I. He became a beast so that we could become like him. Would you pray with me? Father, we love you and we're grateful for your word and your goodness to us. I pray that you just help Spirit organize uh, the, the many movements and thoughts of this talk and this teaching. Would you make it um, helpful to us? Um, thank you for, for your word. It is incredible. And when we step back to look at the big picture the, the, the meta-narrative of the scriptures, we see this incredible saga, this story that's unfolding. And, and we see how these little individual stories like Jacob's Ladder or Daniel's Dream and Vision, how, how they fit into the greater story. And the greater story is building to your son, Jesus. And so we just, are, we just marvel in that. We accept and welcome a greater sense of wonder and awe about you because of the, the incredible uh, uh, things that we, we gain and learn from your word. But more than just these words and these pages, Father, we want more of you. These are words on a page that tell us about you. But Father, we want you, not just the things that we learn about you. And so would you grow in us a deeper love and desire to give ourselves to you? And, and, and would you help us to recognize your self-giving love? And would that spur us on to pursue you with all of our hearts? Father, I ask in spirit, would you, would you help soften hearts that are, that are holding back from giving all of themselves to you? Would you, would you, would you loosen the, the, the bondage or the, 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 the chains that are holding them from wanting to fully give themselves to you or wanting to stay in the cycles of addiction or whatever it is, God. I just, we pray that your spirit would soften hearts, make yourself more lovely to us. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. We desire to be formed by the Word of God in community. If you have questions about this week's sermon, we would love to hear from you. For more information about our church, please visit centralbible.church.